Thank you. Good morning. This morning again, we're in uh, the parables of Jesus, simple stories, daring truths. This morning, we're in Luke chapter 17, verses uh, 7, 8, 9, and 10. Will any one of you who has a servant, and a servant would be a bond slave. A bond slave would be someone who was liberated, but by bond chose to stay a slave or a servant within the household. And when I was a brand new follower of Jesus Christ, that was my justification for putting a, an earring in my left ear, a post in my left ear, because that's what they would do to signify you were a bond slave, was to put a post in the bond slave's ear. So uh, when I put that back in, you'll know the background of that. <laughs> I didn't wear a tie this morning because I'm so radical. Just, uh... Will any one of you who has a servant or a slave plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterward, you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was your duty. One of the greatest lessons I have learned and that I am learning is this. And it has to be put this way, at least in my experience. Learn to love the results of obedience. Learn to love the results of obedience. I continue to prod myself or to think in that framework. Learn to love the results of obedience. That's doing what's right. And of course, the irony is, is that we never know what those results are. But when we do what's right, when we, when we obey the Lord, which is my personal application that applies to all other situations and people, I can rejoice in doing what's right. I can I can do it with a sense of expectancy and hopefulness. I can do it as unto the Lord. Even when those results don't serve me. This, uh, this lesson, or at least uh, kind of the realization that I, you know, I hadn't anticipated. I, 
obedience was just duty and obeying and there was no suspense, no expectancy. And I, and I realized I was, I was missing that. And it was, it was through um, a time in my life when I was, I was speaking uh, at separate times, but it, it was kind of accumulative, uh, speaking out of the, the book of Jonah, and then uh, the life of Joseph from uh, Genesis 37 and following. And it was in the experience of Jonah and the experience of Joseph that it really hit me that I, that I hadn't learned to love, to embrace, to, to welcome the results of obedience, whatever those results may be. That the most important thing was, was being obedient unto the Lord, doing what's right. The striking example is that of Joseph in chapter 39. You probably remember the story. Joseph was the youngest of his brothers, and his brothers resented his popularity with his dad. His dad favored him, and he was kind of full of himself. And his, his brothers resented it to the point that they schemed to sell him into slavery. They faked his death, and they sold him into slavery. They got rid of him. What, a, what an absolutely tragic, horrible story. Well, we follow the life of Joseph. I mean, his dad is totally devastated. And the brothers, you know, go on without him now that he's out of the way. But we follow Joseph, and he's eventually uh, sold to an Egyptian as a slave. And because he's such a good servant, he rises in the esteem of his master, Potiphar. And, and Potiphar sees in this kid that, you know, this, this kid does everything well. It's, God's touched him. So he starts to give Joseph increasing responsibility until he rises to the senior level of management. Everything in Potiphar's household and business is under Joseph's control and responsibility. And so and then in chapter 39, uh, we're reminded uh, that Joseph is strong and really uh, good-looking to boot. And Potiphar's wife has her eyes on Joseph. And one day she, she comes on to Joseph. And Joseph, he says, whoa, 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 I can't do that to my master. This isn't the right thing to do. And she in she keeps after him, and so he, he finally, he runs, and she grabs his cloak off of him, but he runs, and I'm thinking, wow, that is so hard to do. He did the right thing. He did the thing that honored God. He did the thing that honored his master. 
How many of us would, would have that fortitude, that commitment, that strength of character, that integrity to do that right thing? He could have gotten away with it. Nobody maybe would have known. And you would think, wow, if you do that, I mean, this is the way I think. You know, if I obey God, somebody's going to blow a trumpet. Somebody's going to say, whoa, man, you did the right thing. You did the hard thing. Somebody's going to bring me up in a sermon. (laughs) But nothing of the kind happened like that. In fact, everything went wrong. Everything. Potiphar's wife said that he came on to her. She didn't play by the rules. She lied about him. And so he was thrown in prison. And you see, that really hit me because I thought he did everything right. He obeyed his master. He honored earthly and heavenly father. And he ended up in prison. And I, I, I know how this works. A lot of, at that point, then we, we say, I'm walking away from God. I'm not trusting him anymore. I mean, look what it gets me. man, that hit me. And that, that story, if you will, is played out in the life of Jonah. It's played out throughout Scripture. And it needs to be played out in our lives too. That obeying God, being faithful, doing the right thing isn't always going to prove to be in our, or what we think is our best interest. In other words, if I don't factor into my faith that the results are God's and not mine, I'm actually trusting and obeying God only for my personal gain and advantage. And in such cases, my faith is in God insofar as God serves me and not so far as I serve God. That's the difference between faithfulness and fickleness. And that's, I think, the issue here in our parable. In fact, if we start at verse 1 of chapter 17... In verses 1 through 4, Jesus says to his disciples, his followers, in fact, they're mentioned as apostles in verse 5, which is something uh, quite profound because an apostle is an agent. He's a representative. He's one who is as the one who sends him. And Jesus says in verses 1 and 2, Stumbling is going to come, but don't you cause stumbling. And then in verse 3, uh, he says, listen, if, uh, if a brother or sister sins, you need to confront that. 
You need to address that. And then in verse 3 and 4, you need to forgive. You need to forgive any sin. Confront, I mean, cause no sin, confront sin, forgive sin. And then verse 5 comes, and this is what the disciples say. Increase our faith. <laughs> I, need, I need a boost. I need to be augmented. I need a supplement. It's kind of interesting because the Greek word is the word from which we get our English word prosthesis. <laughs> I need another arm to do this. I need something special. I need something more. Lord, do you expect me to cause no sin, to confront sin, to forgive sin? I need to be a superhero. Well, that might be overstating it, but the point is we're not equipped to do this on our own. We need something more. And Jesus says, you don't need more faith. If you, had, if you had the faith of a mustard seed, when I was in Israel in October a couple years ago, we've, we actually ran into mustard seed, and I held those seeds, and they're so small. They're smaller than a flea. He says, if you had the faith of a mustard seed, you could uproot this mulberry, which were notorious for their deep-rooted difficulty to uproot. You could uproot this mulberry and throw it into the sea. In other words, you've got enough faith right now to do things you don't even need to do, like uproot mulberries and throw them into the sea. Here's what you need. You need a good dose of obedience. You just need to do what you're told to do and realize you've got all that it takes. And that's the emphasis of his parable. In this parable, and basically this parable consists of three rhetorical questions. They're rhetorical because, well, we always use the word rhetorical when we're identifying the fact that we already know the answer. It's a question to which we don't need an answer. We know the answer. And so it's rhetorical because it's trying to draw our attention to what we already know, but Maybe we need to do. And so he asks these rhetorical questions. Two of them are in verses 7 and 8 to make the point that masters don't wait on slaves. Slaves wait on masters. And in verse 9, the rhetorical question is that masters don't thank slaves for doing what they're expected to do. The main point of Jesus' parable is it's right to do the master's will. For a slave to dutifully serve the master 
without thought of reward or recognition. But you see, beyond all this, he takes this very human example, this conventional relationship, but behind it and above it and around it is this much bigger relationship, their relationship to Jesus and their relationship to God the Father, because Jesus represents God the Father. Well, in our day and age, we don't like stories about slaves and masters. I mean, if Jesus were to have told this story on CNN or Fox News, he would get slammed. I mean, can you imagine the media storm, the talking heads, the endless parsing of his words, all of which would miss the point? The slave does the master's will. No ifs, ands, or buts. And it's silly to think a slave should expect a reward or recognition. Just to give us an idea, I mean, that seems so foreign to us. And it is. I mean, it's about 2,000 years away. But I got to thinking, you know, many of us after the service today will go out to a restaurant and enjoy a lunch. Can you imagine your server serving you your food, providing your drinks, answering your whims, and then coming and sitting down with you. And you say, yes, uh, no, everything's great, you know. And the waiter, the server says, well, I helped you get your food, so I thought that I would enjoy it with you. We would just think that, I mean, we'd be flabbergasted. And if we posed it as a question, is that the kind of thing you expect? You'd say, absolutely not. Uh, Some of you are in the market for a house, and uh, you use a realtor to help you get that house to, you know, sort out all the issues, to find it, to sort out all the financing and everything. And there, you, you, you know, escrow clears, you get title to your house, you're moving in, and your realtor shows up with his own or her own moving truck. Well, I helped you get it. I just thought I would enjoy it with you. I mean, we'd go, what? So, you know, it, it's not so crazy for us to get the point, even if it's a story that's really alien to our own experience. Of course, Jesus does not treat people like slaves, nor act like a slave master. In Mark 10, 45, and this is uh, found in other gospels as well, Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve. It's pretty remarkable. I came not to be served, but to serve. In fact, in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 12, verse 37, there's a parable that we'll look at called the parable of the waiting slaves. And the master arrives, and the slaves are waiting. They're alert. They're ready for him. And when the master enters... He says, blessed are those servants 
whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table. And he will come and serve them. That's turning the whole convention of the master-slave relationship on its head. And then in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 13, it isn't just a story, it's what Jesus actually did. He himself dressed for service and washed the disciples' feet. And he got to Peter. And Peter says, this is going too far, Jesus. You're not going to wash my feet. I mean, come on. This is just, that's embarrassing. I don't even want to show you my feet. I've got them tucked under my robe. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, Peter... You have no part with me. You have no inheritance with me. You do not belong to me. This is so crucial to who I am and who you must become and who you are to be. If you're to belong to me, if you're to bear my title, my name, who I am, You still don't want me to wash your feet? Peter says, no. Wash my feet, wash my ankles, wash my knees, wash, wash all of me, head to toe, because that's what I want to be about. You see, if we're unwilling to obey him as our master, we won't serve others like our master. If we won't obey him as our master, we won't serve others as our master. Jesus serves others who came to serve, who serves slaves. That's the bigger background. And it's what Jesus is asking his disciples when he asks him, Ask them, cause no sin, confront sin, forgive sin. And they say, oh, we need a little extra, Jesus. We need some incentive. We need a booster. We need a power pack. We need superhuman abilities here. And Jesus says, you don't need superhuman abilities. You don't need more faith. You've got all the faith you need. You know what you need? You need to obey me. You need to do what I'm asking you to do. You need to trust me. You need to follow me. You need to step out and just do it. And that's what this story is all about. It's about rejoicing in doing the right thing, doing what the Lord asks us to do. W. Somerset Mom in the painted veil said, remember that it is nothing to do your duty. That is demanded of you and is no more meritorious than to wash your hands when they're dirty. The only thing that counts is love of duty. Then love and duty are one. Then grace is in you and you will enjoy a happiness 
which surpasses all understanding. Helen Keller, blind, unable to speak, wrote, I long to accomplish a great and noble task, but it's my chief duty to accomplish humble tasks as though they were great and noble. The world is moved along, not only by the mighty shoves of its heroes, but also by aggregate, which means the accumulation of the tiny pushes of each honest worker. Soren Kierkegaard said, what the age needs, in other words, what this world needs, is not a genius, but a martyr, who in order to teach men to obey, would himself be obedient to death. Not one of us wants to be obedient to death. But what Kierkegaard is saying is, if we just be obedient, we'd have more influence than a genius. And if we are called to martyrdom, we'd be ready. Learn to love the results of obedience. That's all makes all the difference. And, and you know, when we do it as unto the Lord, that's the compelling thing. Then the Lord makes obedience a responsibility. You know, I was thinking, and I, I don't mean to be tricky. I know when we use the word responsibility, it's a long way from this. But when you look at the word responsibility, you know what the big part of that word is? Response response. Faith is a response that personalizes accountability. It, it says, I'm going to take ownership of this. Responsibility means, Jesus, I know you're talking to me. I know you're talking to me. I love Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He'll make straight your paths. That takes obedience. Trust rolls over into obedience. He can't direct anything unless we're responsive. Parents understand this. God forbid that we have to become parents to learn this, but parents understand this. We know our children are growing up and becoming responsible when we don't have to bribe them to do what's right. Is that not right? We know our children are becoming adults and responsible when we don't have to bribe them to do the right thing. And that's what God wants out of us, spiritual adults. It's interesting, and Brian gave me this, uh, th this Dallas Willard book, Hearing God, 
is the main title, and the subtitle is Developing a Conversational Relationship with God. And when you read the preface, you don't get very far when he says these words, what God treasures in those who intend to serve him. And right after that, he gives this parable. And that's the cornerstone of the entire book. Let me give you the title of the book again, Hearing God, Developing a Conversational Relationship with God. To really attune our ear to him, we've got to do what he asks us to do, or else we're not going to hear him. In 1964, March 13th, 1964, I remember it. It was all over the news. And as a young 11-year-old kid, it, it, it really hit me. Catherine Genovese, known as Kitty, was making her way from her car to her apartment when she was attacked just outside the doors of her apartment. And her screams were heard throughout the neighborhood, her screams for help. It's reported that well over 30, they've actually put a number on it, but it's over 30 people heard her screams and her cries for help. And no one came to her aid. No one even called the police. And, and it's, it's kind of even horrified, just made that word up, by the fact that at one point, the murderer was scared away, and then he came back. It, it went on for 90 minutes, and the whole country was horrified and, and confused. How does that happen? And two social psychologists, John Darley and Bib Latani, they, they set out to figure this out. How is it that all those people could witness this and ignore it? How is it that those people, so many, could hear her cries for help and do nothing? And their studies and their research gave the answer. It's called the bystander effect, or the Genovese syndrome. They found that responsibility is proportionate to the number of people present. So, for example, if Jesus just spoke to you, 85% of those that Jesus had a one-on-one conversation with would respond and be responsible to what he asked. 85%, not 100 you'd think, but 85%. If two are present, 62%. If five are present, 31%. In other words, the next time you're talking to a group of five and you ask them to do that, well, that means uh, one and a half people are going to respond. Jesus doesn't want his church 
to be a crowd of bystanders. He wants his church to be disciples united by his word. And when we take it personally, that's the beginning of responsibility. When we say, you're speaking to me. And we don't say, well, I'd be happy to if I had something more, extra faith, faith of some kind. If you made me into a superhero. And Jesus is just saying, no, you don't need, you've got enough. All you have to do is step out and do it. Trust me. Let me be the master. You be the servant. You be the disciple. The Lord makes it a responsibility. The Lord makes it real without recognition. We do it because it's right, not because there's a reward or recognition. And I understand how important motivation and incentive and reward and applause is to what we do. And often it kind of encourages us to, you know, make it real. I remember early on in our marriage, I did the dishes. And back in those days, men didn't do dishes. They weren't expected to do dishes. Real men don't do dishes. But I did the dishes. And Shelly didn't even notice. She didn't say anything. And I kind of waited around, so to speak. You know? I mean, I was attuned to this. When's she going to say, hey, sweetheart, that was beautiful. Thank you. Man, that means so much to me. What a special gift. You are the greatest husband in the whole world. I was waiting for something like that, but nothing. And this dragged on. You know, the sunset and nothing. And the next, you know what? This started to get to me. I be, I. I had a mood, <laughs> and I became a bit irritable and feisty, and it was kind of like I was withdrawing. I'm not going to give you my love until you recognize that I washed the dishes. And we got into a fight, as I recall. But it wasn't over the dishes. It was about something else because I was irritable. And the dishes had become this shibboleth, this, this striking thing that determined her love for me. Her recognition of what a wonderful husband I am. So naturally, I'm a little upset with her in general. And we get into a fight. And, and then, you know, exhaustion sets in. And you finally say, you know, what's really behind all this? I know it's a mystery. You can't figure out why I'm upset. But it's because I did the dishes for you and you didn't say a word. And Shelley said, why do I have to thank you for doing what you ought to do? 
They're your dishes too. And I, you know what? I didn't like that. <laughs> but deep down, in a corner, in a corner, I knew she was right. Even if other men didn't have to do dishes, I knew she was right. By the way, and this is just a little tip, if you, write, if you replace the word deserve in your thinking or your vocabulary with the word desire, it will really help you in life. Because when we de- think we deserve things, then we set ourselves up for disappointment. But if we keep it in the realm of desire, ah, much healthier. Lauren Sandy, founder of the Navigators, was asked, how do you know when you have the attitude of a servant? He said, you know you're a servant by how you act when you're treated like one. That's what Jesus is saying of his disciples. You, you got to get comfortable with being servants, with being slaves, and not expecting a reward, not expecting applause, not expecting fanfare. Like I said, I know recognition and reward can be a major motivator to us. You might kind of check yourselves out this week and see how, how much that plays into what you do. You're looking for a payoff. You're looking for praise in some fashion or manner. And I really wrestled with that this week because I want to see us motivated by the Lord. And I wanted to come up with, with some inner insight to help, help us, you know, become more devoted and desirous to, to really find some joy and virtue in doing what's right. And I could only come up with this one thing. Do it as unto the Lord. Do it as unto the Lord. He deserves it. He's worth it. And if he isn't all of that in your heart and life, then you're missing out on the greatest motivation revealed in history and eternity. And the Lord makes it a routine. Note the words, when you've done everything you were told to do, and we have only done our duty, which is to say we have only done what we ought to have done. How many heroes, how many first responders, how many Soli Solenbergs have we heard say, I'm no hero. I was just doing what I was supposed to do, what I was trained to do. When they say that, does it diminish the way you see them? Does it Does it somehow diminish or shrink the importance, the rightness, the virtue of what they've done? It doesn't at all. And you know what's interesting is they say, this is what we've trained for. This is what we do every day, every day, every day. This is what we do. You notice that? They became heroes because they did that day what they do every day. 
In other words, they're heroic day in and day out, but they're thrust into the limelight, into the spotlight by circumstances and the opportunity to do their duty. And if you can get that, It'll change your life. It won't change just yours. It'll change the lives of those around you. The people you live with, the people you go to school with, it'll change everything. You know, it's interesting that uh, in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, a lot has happened at that point in Joseph's life. And his brothers, after their father dies, they're afraid that Joseph is going to reveal himself to be someone that he hasn't up until that point. They think he was just honoring their father. And so they're scared because he's now the viceroy. He's like the vice president of Egypt. He's got all the power. And they come to him and they ask forgiveness for what they've done. And Joseph says, you meant it for harm but God meant it for good to save the lives of many. If you and I could realize that God is going to take our obedience and do things that we can't calculate because the things that he wants to do aren't measured by our own lives. It's an extraordinary vision of who we are in Jesus Christ. And we're more than just slaves. We're the people he's using to make a difference in this world. We stand with me. I'm going to pray for us, but I want to remind you that if you don't know this God who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ, who loves you, who speaks to you this morning, after I pray, I'm going to be up here at the front with elders and uh, their wives and pastoral staff. If you'd like to talk to me or others, if you'd like to pray with us, to pray for yourself, pray for someone that's on your heart this morning, pray for God's leading and direction and wisdom in your life. Whatever it is, we invite you to come. God bless you this week. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, to rejoice in your will. To do what's right is such a sweet invitation. It's really a privilege. We just have to have the attitude of those who trust you so completely that we're willingly your slaves. That's a hard lesson for us in this world of me. We pray, Father, that you'll gently teach, guide, and direct us this week. Show us the wonders of following you and it's great joy. We pray this in Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, amen. God bless you.